The Chattanooga family of shockwave therapy devices bring deep tissue treatments in less time with less effort and greater patient comfort. Built around proven penetrating acoustic wave technology, Chattanooga offers treatment solutions that can reach up to 12.5 centimeters below the skin, making even the deepest causes of pain treatable and resolvable. Whether you're a growing clinic needing a versatile solution or a large sports medicine center that demands the best in recovery, Chattanooga has a therapy solution to get your patients moving. Learn more at djoglobal.com slash shockwave therapy. Clinical studies and device indications available upon request. Individual results may vary. Neither DJO LLC nor any of its subsidiaries dispense medical advice. Consult your healthcare professional for advice. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Lateral ankle sprains are often referred to as the common cold of the musculoskeletal world. So with their ubiquity, how do we make sure we're managing them as well as we can? To help keep you up to date, we're sitting down with Dr. Todd Davenport to cover the brand new updated clinical practice guideline on lateral ankle sprains and chronic ankle instability. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland as well. Dr. Todd Davenport, thank you so much for joining us on the JOSPT Insights Podcast. Gosh, thank you for having me. Uh, this is it's a wonderful opportunity. And before I get started with answering, I just want to acknowledge my, all of my co-authors just did yeoman's work in putting together the literature and summarizing and sorting and trying to figure out the best possible evidence to, uh, to get to, to practicing clinicians and, and not just practicing clinicians, but policymakers and payers to, to make sure that, that what we do is, is compensated. Ankle stability and movement coordination impairments, lateral ankle ligament sprains revision 2021. So this is the basically ankle sprain clinical practice guidelines, CPGs for 2021. So our goal today is to go over the highlights. What's different? What's new? What should clinicians be changing, if anything, about our approach to ankle sprains based on this updated CPG compared to the one published in 2013? I'd say that the there are some recommendations, of course, that have changed, and I'll get into those in a moment. But probably, the I would say, the biggest shift in the CPG was in its structure. In this CPG, we've recategorized a lot of the, the, the data and the literature according to not only the time frame of healing following a lateral ankle sprain, but also tried to look at prevention. Again, trying to, to echo and follow the APTA's vision statement of transforming society to get upstream to be able to prevent these ankle sprains before they begin. And so, so not only have we kept the flavor of a, an acute lateral ankle sprain, but also now we have a sort of subacute and post-acute lateral ankle sprain as being sort of a second classification, which is sort of the old and cold ankle sprain. But then we also have chronic ankle instability where the, the issue is less pain and swelling. And it's more this pattern of, of kind of rocking and rolling on that ankle where there's, there's recurrent sprains and instability that occur. The second thing that we did, in addition to making a little bit more intentional and transparent the phases of recovery following an ankle sprain and kind of the clinical classification of an ankle sprain is the phases of prevention. So looking at primary prevention involving people who 
have never had an ankle sprain before and how do we keep them from having one? Secondary prevention, which in our case, we defined as having an ankle sprain prior, but trying to prevent the next one. And then tertiary prevention, which is really rehabilitation, kind of more of the rehab mode that we're, we're more generally more comfortable with as, as physical therapists. Which is super exciting. And that's all what we're after is trying to prevent these things. So I love the direction you guys took. So what are those recommendations for primary prevention? What were the biggest things that the group came up with? So in the manner of primary prevention, what we found that sort of rose to the top was the use of prophylactic bracing to reduce the risk of a first-time lateral ankle sprain. The preventive uh, effect of exercise for preventing that first-time lateral ankle sprain is inconclusive. And we can't make too many recommendations at this point regarding the preventative effect of shoe wear either. But the thing that really rose to the top was, was prophylactic bracing. Which is new because in the past it was, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, it was that bracing was not recommended to prevent the first ankle sprain, but it was to prevent secondary ankle sprains. Is that right? Yeah, this is, this is new. This is one of those things that after you've reviewed tens of thousands of articles and you start to pull them all together, it's a, it's a new trend that emerges. And so that does become really exciting to help guide what we do. And now, is there a difference between bracing and taping that emerged, or are we just putting that together into they're both helpful? It's a little unclear whether bracing or taping are effective when you compare them. When we look at joint supports, you know, ankle stabilizers outside of the boot braces, they tend to reduce ankle injuries compared to no supports. And this is based on 10 trials of, of a total of over 13 and a half thousand patients. What was surprising, Chelsea, is that the preventative effect of exercise therapy really lacks evidence. You know, there's evidence sort of on both sides of whether it can, it can reduce the incidence of a first time ankle sprain. And due to the inconclusive of that evidence, you know, we can't make, we can't make any recommendations about that. And so really what, what tended to rise to the top uh, in our analysis was that, that bracing was, was the most effective. And so in line with primary prevention, do we know who is most vulnerable to having these first initial ankle sprains and therefore who would benefit most from prophylactic taping and bracing? You know, we do. And in a lot of these primary prevention studies, you know, these were done in athletes and cutting sports. So we think of, of anyone who changes direction as quickly as potentially benefiting, you know, from a brace. We do know that there are other risk factors, of course, for for lateral ankle sprains. Those risk factors are being female. The estimated incidence of ankle sprains in females is about 13.6 per thousand exposures, which is about double that of males, which is, which is more like seven per thousand exposures. About two out of five lateral ankle sprains occur during sports. The, uh, the field sports tend to have a much lower pooled incidence and also we're, we're becoming more aware of the prevalence and incidence of lateral ankle sprains, not just in, in sports, but also in, in people who have active occupations such as tactical athletes. And so, so, so in, the, in the military, which is where, where Dr. Frazier, who's one of our co-authors has done a lot of his work. Okay. So you're going to be more likely the more you play basically. So professional athletes are going to get it more, are going to experience ankle sprains more often than college, college more often than high school, and mostly court sports versus field sports. So if they were a collegiate courts, collegiate volleyball player, you say, yeah, then it might be a good idea to, if it, if it doesn't affect your play, then you might want to wear that ankle brace. Yes. Wonderful. Is there anything else on prevention that you really wanted to hit on and make sure that we all know? So in terms of secondary prevention, this is where we have a little bit more latitude to think about bracing 
but also to use proprioceptive and balanced focused therapeutic exercise programs. And these really should be aimed to address you know, impairments identified on the physical examination in balance and an ankle dorsiflexion range of motion in order to reduce the risk of a subsequent injury after a first time lateral ankle sprain. So again, you know, secondary prevention is where a person has had a first time sprain and we're trying to prevent the next acute sprain. And so let's move away from prevention now and more into your actual exam. First and foremost, what's on the top of your differential diagnosis list? What do you want to make sure you rule out that may be disguising itself as a lateral ankle sprain? So yeah, there there are some things to to sort of watch out for. And I think the of course the main differential diagnosis there, Dan, is fracture. And so using using the Ottawa ankle rules to determine the need for either a foot series or, or an ankle series becomes really important. And two, you know, there are, there are different pathoanatomical features that can delay the healing of a lateral ankle sprain. And, and really these features that delay the healing can, can also add visits and, and make, make insurance companies angry and make patients question why they're still seeing us and why it's not working. So we should be watching out for, for those things as well. So, you know, things like kind of ostrigonum, anterior ankle in, in, in impingement, maybe that there's been some involvement of the, the syndesmosis, the deltoid and the, the subtalar ligaments, involvement of the midfoot. We need to be watching out for injuries to the fibularis muscle group, as well as nerve pathologies, superficial fibular nerve, for example. These are, you know, not uncommon. Ankle impingement, for example, occurs in a, about one in four people after a lateral ankle sprain and you know potentially potentially results from a soft tissue injury or post-traumatic you know tibio talar osteophytes and so we need to make sure that we're watching out for these pathoanatomic features that might delay healing in addition to making sure that we don't miss you know the potential for fractures and into the objective exam with this CPG, what are the, the must includes, the must look at when it comes to the actual exam portion of your evaluation? In the acute phase, the most important things to, to look at would be pain with dorsiflexion and the, the amount of dorsiflexion, passive range of motion. Think about the, the mechanism of injury to the lateral ankle ligaments being more in plantar flexion, that if there's a limitation of ankle dorsiflexion, then that might predispose a person to future future injury. Or, you know, replicating that, that mechanism of injury on a micro scale just with normal functional activities. You know, they've got to, they've got to resort to transverse and frontal plane motion if they don't have that motion in the sagittal plane for good tibial progression. So that that would be the first, the first piece. And also dynamic postural control, just super important. So looking at the star excursion balance test is, is a very, very good test to pick up you know, many of those of those subtle deficits, especially in the anterior direction, uh, the posteromedial and the posterolateral directions seem seem like they're the they're the most important. And then, and then I would say, you know, in terms of of the physical exam, looking at closed chain ankle dorsiflexion, in addition to the the standard goniometry, is is very is very useful. So the the knee to wall measurement, I think, should be a really important part of people's exam, and that, that gives a really nice uh, composite dorsiflexion measurement that involves not only the tail curl joint, but also the midfoot, the midfoot and rear foot joints that are involved in pronation. So that's for a lateral ankle sprain, more acute. You want to look at the dorsiflexion. You want to see how they're moving and what their kind of dynamic postural control is. Is that different for chronic? How much of that overlaps? 
It's a really good question. So in, in terms of chronic ankle instability, I think one of the things that really rose to the top was the ability to characterize the, the nature of the instability. So is this a mechanical instability, you know, using things like Taylor tilt test, using things like uh, Taylor inversion, Taylor translation, or is this more of a dynamic impairment, you know, using single imbalance and, and some of the balance excursion tests. So that becomes really important. We also list a few hop tests uh, for people who have the, the, the clinic space and are able to get those done as well. So really at the end of the day, your, your exam is intended to, to characterize the nature of the impairment and then also to do some outcome measures that you can track over time. And, and to back up and talk about the patient-reported outcome measures, there are some, some questionnaires that retain some discriminative validity between people with chronic ankle instability and people who don't have chronic ankle instability. So things like the, the, the Cumberland uh, ankle instability tool, for example, uh, and there are others that we list in the, in the guideline can be used to really help differentiate between people who, who do and don't have CAI uh, types of presentation. And Todd, on the, on the note of the objective measures, can you touch on the fear avoidance beliefs questionnaire and how that relates to chronic ankle instability? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we can't we can't ignore the ankles hooked up to a brain. And people interpret their symptoms and the threat appraisal associated with their symptoms in different ways. And so if we throw someone on a, you know, dynamic training program and a dynamic balance training program and we forget to address, you know, some of the 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 concern that they may have about their symptoms and the level of threat associated with them, then I think we're missing a big part of the picture. Looking outside of the actual ankle there was there anything else? I mean, looking up all the way up to the ch- all the way up the chain that would be important to check out. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and in in particular for for chronic, and and we listed the we listed that evidence in in 2013, and that didn't change much. But there really are evidence of electromyographic changes even up to the contralateral glute medius and glute max in a person with chronic ankle instability. So. Just really important to make sure that we're, we're looking at this as not just a, a person with a, an ankle mobility impairment, but just remembering that there's an entire kin, kinematic chain that needs to be evaluated and dealt with. Now that we've performed a great exam on both a patient with a lateral ankle sprain and with chronic ankle instability, what do we do about it? What are the interventions? What are the highlights that you took from this that you guys found in the CPG that we need to know? In terms of early weight bearing and support, you know, braces and taping tend to be effective to reduce currents and also uh, improve self-reported function. We know that we should avoid long-term immobilization. And by long-term, I mean 10 days. Now for grade three injuries, where there's more severe uh, disruption of the lateral ankle ligaments, you might think about either semi-rigid casting, semi-rigid bracing or below knee casting. But again, 10 days is kind of the limit there. Uh, after which we start to see excessive muscle atrophy and becomes a lot harder to, to rehab that. And that even grade one and grade two injuries that people are trying to walk off tend to be treated pretty well with a semi-rigid ankle brace. In terms of therapeutic exercise, we we were a little agnostic about the types of therapeutic exercise, but I'll say that the range of exercises in the literature uh, is more along the lines of balance training exercise. And so that's often where you see is more kind of neuromuscular exercise in the literature and that the best research evidence demonstrated that supervised re- rehabilitation programs 
resulted in less pain and subjective instability about eight weeks after the injury, but no differences in self-reported outcomes at the longer follow-up periods, three and 12 months after injury. But there were greater gains in strength and joint position sense at the four, at four months, so kind of that intermediate follow-up, but inconclusive results of therapeutic exercise after an acute lateral ankle sprain to prevent recurrent sprains at 12, 12 months after the injury. We think that exercise therapy should be commenced after a lateral ankle sprain in order to optimize you know, the recovery of joint functionality. But you know, the literature is mixed whether it should be supervised or not. And so it kind of really depends whether your uh, your patient will be regular about doing their exercise program and uh, sort of the complexity of the exercise program that you've prescribed in terms of you know whether that should whether that should be supervised. Don't tell us that, Todd. No, no, that's not what you're supposed to find. I know, I know. Like I didn't want to find that, and I don't think anybody else, but any of us wanted to find that. But I think this really comes back to the fact that if patients are doing their exercise program, they they can do fine. You know, again, this this goes back to using our our best clinical judgment. This is this is on the basis of one review and a few studies. And you know, it's it's possible that there's a lot of variation in terms of what patients actually need. And so I think this recommendation, if anything, points out a little bit of the the limitation of CPGs that you know we're looking at the scientific evidence only. We're not looking at patient presentation. We're not looking at patient preferences and we're not really looking at clinician judgment. Right. And you know, this kind of makes a lot of sense to me. It's, it's not saying that everyone will do just as well supervised or unsupervised. There are certainly people who will do fine with less supervision, some people who do need more care more frequently. And that's all going to depend on the intensity of the injury, their motivation, the complexity of the rehab program, the patient self-efficacy and and, and uh, really like their schedule and finances, which I don't think we always remember is actually a really important factor. And so with all that together, let's have a discussion and see, hey, would this patient benefit from a, a, a high frequency plan of care? Do they just need some guidance and check-ins? Maybe they need yeah. two to three times a week at first and then can quickly taper off to semi-independent management. I actually like that the CPG reinforces that by saying, hey, they may need supervision. They may not. It's really up to the clinician discretion based on the patient in front of them. You mentioned manual therapy and you mentioned any other modalities. Can you touch on those? Essentially, the, the strength of the literature was that we, we think clinicians should use manual therapy procedures in people with ankle sprain, acute lateral ankle sprains. It looks like it looks like we should be putting our hands on patients. The range of manual therapy interventions that seem to be effective would be things like lymphatic drainage to address swelling soft tissue and joint mobilizations, you know, anterior to posterior tailor mobilizations within a pain-free movement. We're thinking about low velocity interventions, not high velocity interventions like manipulation so much. You know, manual therapy procedures really should be used alongside that therapeutic exercise regimen in order to promote the most optimal results. So not much in the way of cryotherapy, diathermy, laser. Those are the other ones brought up in the CPG. If we're, if we're talking about winners and losers, man, cryotherapy lost uh, between 2013 and 2021 because we had some, uh, some pretty convincing evidence come forward that it was not helpful. And in some cases, indirect, uh, indirectly may be harmful through reducing nerve conduction, nerve conduction velocities, which would be counterproductive if we're trying to, to improve balance. So now we've, we went from a nice strong grade uh, of A for cryotherapy in the 2013 guideline to a conflicting grade for, for 2021. 
I did not expect cryotherapy to take such an L in this update. It is it's it's so ingrained in our not only our management of acute sprains but also just that of the general public's. Uh, Todd, can you tell us about changes in interventions when it comes to the chronic ankle instability side of of management here? The the flavor of the recommendations are substantively the same between 2013 and 2021 as it relates to to chronic ankle instability. And so really, you know, we should be prescribing proprioceptive and neuromuscular exercises. They improve dynamic postural stability. They improve patient perceived stability in people with chronic ankle instability. Interestingly, though, the therapeutic exercise may not by itself reduce injury recurrence, which is kind of why we go back to, you know, the use of, of prophylactic bracing. Uh, in order to reduce recurrence. But again, therapeutic exercise can improve important things like dynamic postural stability and, and perceived stability. We think also that people should be putting their hands on folks who have chronic ankle instability. And so, you know, procedures that manual therapy procedures that have been described in the literature include, you know, things like uh, graded mobiliz- joint mobilizations up to manipulation, non-weight-bearing and weight-bearing mobilization with movement. And these are all intended to improve ankle dorsiflexion, which I think we said at the outset uh, is a really key physical exam measure in this population. And also to improve you know, dynamic balance really related to the fact that there's more freedom of movement, but that again, manual therapy alone isn't going to cut it. It needs to be uh, done within the context of a comprehensive program involving uh, therapeutic exercise. And was was there anything about dry needling? There was some evidence of, uh, of effectiveness for dry needling the fibularis muscle group in folks with chronic ankle instability, but I should note that the dry needling occurred alongside a proprioceptive training program. So all, all signs point back to do exercise. Also, some relatively weak evidence, uh, good study weak evidence of, of trigger point dry needling. But again, all signs point back to making sure that we're, we're loading our patients. Yay. That's like the theme of everything, of every podcast we do. Now, is there any other key points of education that we should be giving these patients before we let them go? We had, we had an expert uh, recommendation in here, expert level recommendation, because we've seen the trend in so many other musculoskeletal health conditions of using psychologically informed techniques, things like motivational interviewing, things like trauma-informed care to make sure that we're really working on the threat associated with the recovery process and, and the threat associated with re-injury and to really work on this whole idea of, if we want to call it fear of movement or kinesiophobia, you know, some of, the, some of these beliefs about movement and re-injury that occur um, as a result of having sustained an injury. And as a person who's sprained an ankle myself a few times, it is not fun. <laughs> so there's a lot of, there's a lot of trauma uh, that goes into this. And, you know, there's a lot of just trying to get to know your patient and understanding where they're coming from and sort of how they're doing with their recovery process. And so again, using uh, psychologically informed techniques to, to really get at these core issues of injury perceptions and beliefs and, and motivations really seems key here. Todd, last thing here. Anything else you want to make sure people hear about the CPG that we have not covered so far? The guideline, number one, is not a cookbook. You know, the guideline is there to summarize, you know, the scientific literature, which really is a summary of the average 
you know, effects, treatment effects, diagnostic effects, and so forth. And so we're really looking at the center of the bell curve in many cases. And just to sort of point out that, uh, you know, if you, if you look at the recommendations, uh, they'll, they'll put you in good position for kind of the average patient. And so don't use this as a, as a substitute for really looking at your patient and getting to know your patient as a person. So that, that's kind of the, the first thing. The second thing is that we've put together summaries of summaries of infographics of summaries. So please do take a look at the document, get under the hood, take a look at these. So hopefully everyone finds something in this guideline that can be helpful and useful. And then I think the third thing is just to remember that, you know, through this guideline, we're not just talking to physical therapists and, and physical therapy assistants. We're talking to regulators and payers and other healthcare practitioners who might refer to us and we might refer to them. And so to really try and put our foot forward in terms of what our practice is, hopefully people find enough in this guideline to be able to sort of carry that, that vision of our profession forward. Thank you for making it easy for us, Todd and team. And Todd, thank you so much for taking us through top to bottom, how to prevent these ankle sprints from happening in the first place, how to diagnose them, how to evaluate them to be able to diagnose them, and then how to effectively treat both the ankle sprain and also the person. So thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you. And thanks for what you're doing to uh, to kind of bring the literature to the listeners. I really appreciate this medium and the work that you all do. So thanks for for the chance to be part of it. And I think that wraps this episode. Thank you so much, Todd, for coming on the JOSPT Insights podcast. And thank you all for listening to JOSPT Insights. Hope you have a wonderful day. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.